Hey, it's Sarah reminding you to download and subscribe to the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny. This week, Mina chats with Eagles tackle Lane Johnson, as well as former NFL defensive back Dominique Foxworth. You can find the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Hi, my name is Lasia Clarendon, and my dilemma is trying not to eat a pint of ice cream every single night. I mean, I could not be more with you. It's less ice cream and more pizza for me. I want to eat pizza every day. And I did also want to eat pizza every day before, but the desire to uh, discipline ratio is all skewed during quarantine. I can't decide if it's more social media and TV time than usual. Am I being exposed to videos and photos of delicious cheesy pizza at a higher rate? Uh, is it that I'm never allowed to go out to eat with friends and therefore satisfying the urge to cheat with, you know, some burrata or a dessert that we split or something yummy like that? Is it that we all just simply need to suffocate our sadness and our despair over our lost work and wages and social lives and travel and all other joys, with the only exception being the joy that remains available, which is delicious, cheesy pizza and rich, creamy ice cream. I mean, I'm talking about it and I want to order pizza. But on the other hand, I also think to myself regularly, almost daily, now is the time to get healthier than ever because you have no excuses. You can't say it's hard to eat healthy on the road. You're not on the road. You can't say it's hard to say no to splitting yummy foods with friends or trying new restaurants. You can't do any of that. There's no excuses. Just make some salads and suck it up. Do some Zoom yoga. Do some abs in your bedroom before you go to bed. In the end, it would appear I have no answer for you. But I will say this. Uh, your ice cream conundrum is a common one. And we're all vacillating, I think, between making good choices while we're home with no excuses and also, you know, making choices that make us happy in a time when happiness maybe is tougher to come by. So for you, Leja, not for me. My problem is different. This isn't about me. This is about your dilemma. For you, you really never know when the WNBA is coming back. So you should probably lay off the ice cream because uh, you got to be in shape and you're on a new team and big, big spotlight with uh, Sabrina and everybody else in New York and the new coach. So uh, maybe just keep that in the back of your mind whenever the ice cream calls that you will be out on television in your uniform trying to look swole and fit and ready to crush opponents. That should be good enough. The commish has spoken. Lasia Clarendon plays for the WNBA's New York Liberty. She was a first rounder in 2003. She was a 2017 WNBA All-Star, a two-time Olympic gold medalist, and a vocal social activist. We met a few months ago at an event, a uh, roundtable discussion put on by the Warriors, and I was just immediately drawn to her. Uh, she had very strong opinions, a great sense of humor, and a real willingness to use her voice. I thought she was someone more people should hear from. And we had a great conversation. We talked about for longer than I would have anticipated the difficulties in coming out and how her parents uh, made it really hard for both her and her sister to to be honest about their sexuality. Uh, also, why she felt compelled to report a sexual assault in college and why she could return to campus feeling empowered because of that decision. 
the promises of the new WNBA CBA and the disappointment in the season being delayed when she decided to just say F- it and be herself and own it uh, personally and professionally and very publicly as a, a face of the WNBA and the excitement about this upcoming season with the Liberty after number one draft pick Sabrina Inescu joined the team and uh, finally getting to decide her own spot and landing spot in, in the WNBA. She also gave the weirdest what I wanted to be when I grow up answer yet. Weirdest one I've ever heard. Uh, it's a great conversation. Hope you guys enjoy it. That's what she said. Happy to be joined by Lasia Clarendon. And I just love that the organic way that we met made me want to know more about you because we both got, um, well, I was flown out. You live out in the Bay Area, but we both were out for a, a Warriors uh, conversation. Uh, it was you, me, and a couple other ladies talking for Women's History Month about a variety of issues, social issues that are affecting us now and as athletes and otherwise, um, which unfortunately due to the pandemic has not aired yet all those pieces of great yeah. content that i was like so pumped to get out to the world i thought the conversations were so smart but um you really stood out to me during that of just having such incredible insight into so many things outside of just sport and so uh here we are to pick your brain which is why i love having a podcast because if i find people interesting then i just get to get real nosy and bring them on the podcast <laughs> and ask them all questions in the name of, of quote work um so let's start way back uh when you were a kid growing up in san bernardino uh was it clear from the start that you that you were going to be just uh, sports crazed? Oh man, I, oh, that's a good question. I think in some ways, yes. My older sister played basketball. She's six years older than me, six three. I'm not sure what happened there. Uh, grew up, my dad refereed basketball. So by the time I was born, it was a little more like that kind of stereotypical story of like ball in your hand. I don't ever right. not having a basketball, like literally just always playing with some type of ball playing outside. Um, but still wasn't sure, you know, I don't know if you asked my parents if they knew like I had the it thing or the talent level. I wasn't very big. So there wasn't that obvious, like, all right, she's already six foot in the sixth grade. Like she's going to be dunking on people. I was a little skinny nugget, but I was super like feisty and ferocious in my own way. Played in the boys leagues, all those kind of typical things. And then, um, kind of followed in my sister's footsteps though. And she went to college on a basketball scholarship at Pepperdine. So she kind of modeled and paved that way for me to see that there was an opportunity to play at a higher level. Did you play other sports as well? I did. Yeah. I played volleyball. I played uh, track and I ran track and field. I almost played Pop Warner football, but my mom was like, hell no. Can we cuss on here? <laughs> she was like, no, like yeah, my daughter is not sure. playing football. Uh, my son, my dad was like, she's got such good hands. Like I would have been a great wide receiver. Like he just would throw the ball. Like I just run routes and he would just throw bombs and I'd catch them at my mom, maybe for the best part. Cause my brain is nicely intact for the most <laughs> part. She did not let me play football. So that could have been on my resume too. Right. What were your events in track and field? I ran the 800. Uh, horrible. Oh, and brutal. yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> uh, the 400 and I high jumped. Okay. I was a heptathlete. So when I was done with the other six, then I had to run an 800, which is like the worst possible way to finish uh, two days worth of events. Um, Okay. So what else were you into as a kid other than sports? What did you think, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to do X and Y? Oh my God. I wanted to be a grocery bagger. I like, I loved the grocery store. Like I was obsessed from when I was a kid like I would always be like, can I back the groceries? You know, and you're a kid, you're like getting in the way. They're like, move. Like we're trying to <laughs> we're trying to get out of the store. I just loved, I don't know, weirdly type A, like organizational stuff. Like I was like, I'm going to be a grocery bagger when I grow up because I just thought it was like so fun. <laughs> 
Okay. Okay. And then my other thing was I wanted to be a cartoonist at Disneyland. You know, people who draw, like you go and they, they draw you and sketch you and all that. Yeah. That was like also the coolest job ever to like live at Disneyland and just draw people for a living who come visit. Yeah. Okay. Those are the most <laughs> unique wanted to be when I grow up jobs I have ever heard. Uh, for sure. Um, but basketball takes over. You end up being uh, the girls basketball player of the year for the state of California. Really impressive at um, Cajun High School. And what kind of offers were you getting and where did you think you wanted to play? Um, oh, I, when I played at Cajon, yeah, we always, always got to get people okay. on Cajon. Yeah, Cajon. I'll just say Cajun sounds cool. Yeah, it sounds <laughs> better. Cajon, I bet Cajones came up a lot. Um, oh, yeah. And then El Cajon, people always yeah. say, and like, that's the one in San Diego. So uh, what was your question? I wanted to play in college. Um, yeah, like, were you getting offers from a bunch of places or had you had a place in mind? Uh, I did not have a place in mind. I knew I wanted to stay on the West Coast, though, pretty early on in my recruiting process. So I kind of already like ruled out the like Notre Dame type schools um, that were interested to kind of talk to them once and was like, I'm, I just want to stay on the West Coast because I wanted to... I wanted like West Coast basketball to get more street cred and be better. Like all we had really was like Stanford, you know, in the Pac-12 and it was all about Tennessee and all about UConn and all the awesome East Coast schools. So for me, I was like, I want to stay more like homebound talent, not necessarily California, but I was really looking at a lot of Pac-12 schools um, and ended up kind of what between like UCLA, Cal and uh, USC and ASU. And then I just fell in love with Cal, like as a young gay kid in the closet too, it was everything that that I needed that space, like the eclectic weirdos, mm-hmm. anybody can exist on this like Berkeley campus versus the kind of, you know, maybe I always, I always have to throw shade at UCLA. Cause I'm like, you know, they're like, they're pristine West, you know, beautiful campus. It was an awesome place too. There was great people there, but there was just something so different about Berkeley. So eclectic that I just kind of knew someone like me who was still trying to find themselves was going to fit in pretty well. Yeah. So I'm curious, were you sort of aware of the idea that there would be fewer questions or inquiries into being quote unquote different at Berkeley because you didn't want people to ask and, and, and discover that you were gay or was it more just like there will be other gay people there and eventually I'll want to tell people. <laughs> yeah. It was a little bit survival's one. Cause I wasn't out to my family and they were super at the time like homophobic and this is not okay. So that was a level of like, shit, I got to get out of here and get somewhere that I can be more out. Like I wanted to be out and I wanted to be open, but it was like a survival tactic. So I knew um, there were gay players like in my same recruiting class that were going to Cal. So that was a big part of it. Um, People always use recruiting as a negative tool, like that there's queer players or coaches and stuff, but it actually worked in the benefit. I'm like, I was a California state player and I went to Berkeley because I knew like, my teammates around me, there were queer people going there and I knew I would be okay. And our head coach at the time, Joanne Boyle was like super affirming. She was a straight right Christian woman. And I was out to her before I even went to Cal. And she was like, like, you're okay to be who you are. Like I talked to her about not being out to my family, about how tough it was, about how when my sister came out, it was difficult and to kind of put a riff in the family. And she was just super affirming. So like I knew I could go to Cal and I could be okay and I could be safe. Okay, so much to get to here. Okay, so you were comfortable telling your potential future coach and not telling your parents. Like you, you were yeah. out enough <laughs> in the world and comfortable enough being out everywhere but at home, basically. Yeah, basically. So your classmates knew and your friends. 
not all so in like a so rewind more in like little spurts so coming out a lot of time existed like I'll be out in this little space but yeah. not to like parents but I'd be out to like teammates and then I'd yeah. be out in some basketball spaces but not ones where I knew like those parents clearly aren't accepting but their daughter might know you know like their daughter was probably a little gay too so we had like an understanding but you weren't right. out to their parents um and at school it was like I remember kind of gravitating towards like one of my teachers who uh, led the gay straight Alliance, but I never joined it. Cause it was obviously I would have like outed myself at school. And so it was like that kind of between two worlds where like people know, but you're not really talking about it, but you're not going to do like the overt political acts that I do now where I am, right. where I'm like, you know, screaming it to the mountaintops. It was kind of fluttering between two worlds, which is oftentimes how the coming out process works. For sure. How much older is your sister? Six years older than me. Okay, so that's a pretty big gap. Um, tell me about her coming out. Um, and and when you were before she even, you know, officially said it, did you feel like you knew that you were gay and you knew that she was gay? I did. I knew there was something. It's so weird to look now when we have so much words and so many right. so much language to say these things. But at the time, you just didn't have them. Like I didn't hear people saying like I'm queer and this is great or like you could be queer. It just was this weird like don't ask, don't tell, don't talk about it thing. And jazz is this, that's my sister's name. Jazz is this kind of, you know, derogatory term that I even heard, like the word dyke being used off the time. Right. You don't want to be this horrible man hating gross thing. That's the worst thing you could possibly be. It seemed like And So I knew she was like different. And um, when she came out, it was just like a blow up. She was actually outed by someone who told my parents that she was off oh, of wow. college. So I was at home and it was like this, Oh my God, riff. And being young, kind of like, I think it was middle school, elementary, like kind of trying to say something and stand up, but then you can't out yourself. Like you're, if you're, if you're advocating too hard, they're kind of looking at you like, why are you, why are you saying this so much? Or why do you right. care? So it was kind of being like, well, she's gay. That's not the worst thing in the world. Like she's at Pepperdine university on a basketball scholarship. Like I feel like she's doing pretty good, but at the same time trying to stay quiet so you're not putting yourself too much in the spotlight. And I felt a lot of guilt about that too. Is you know, I was young, I was wasn't in a position of power to really advocate for her, but kind of feeling like, you know, I left her on an island by herself. I've seen you talk about being Christian and and wanting to represent to the public that you can be a black gay woman who's non-gender binary and Christian and all these things all at once. Um were your parents very Christian? Is that where the root of their homophobia you think came from? They were not very Christian, which is the irony of it all. I have huh. to say, like, if they'd been super fundamentalist, I would have understood it more. But the root of their homophobia was Christianity. And that's kind of the root of a lot of homophobia is, is religion and these deep rooted ideas. So it was kind of like they used it when it was convenient, but they weren't like going to church every Sunday and super devout. Right. Uh, my mom, kind of like typical black person, Christian, <laughs> like had grown up going to the church, like everybody makes you go to church. And so we'd gone some with her, but I didn't grow up like going to Bible school or praying before bed or learning about God or religion, but it was kind of this convenient tool that was used um, when they needed something or some scripture or something to point to about it, you know, marriage between a man and a woman, or you're going to hell because it's, it's bad to be gay. And so um, my dad, no, I don't, I remember him going to church like maybe one time. I often tried to like stay home with him. It was like clean the garage and you could stay home with dad or go to church. So I'd be like, all right, I'm staying home with dad and clean the garage. And then they get home from church and I'm like, dang, I should have just went to church. I could have been done by now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when did you come out to your family? So I came out to my brother when I was, um, in college, like my early in college 
And he was totally fine. He's younger than me, so he's five years younger. Um, and he was like, Man, they really spread you guys out. They gave themselves a whole lot of a whole lot of yeah. work. <laughs> Eleven between my brother and my sister, and I'm like oh, wow. back in the middle. Yeah. Um, and he was totally fine with it, and like, I love you. And um, I came out to my sister earlier than that. It kind of like you know, I am what you are, but still didn't have all the words for it. But she kind of knew, but we didn't really talk about it, but. Like she knew um, that I came out to my mom my junior year. Um, and like one of the first things she said to me was like, please don't tell your dad. Oh, wow. It was that strong of a like, oh, no, this is going to cause another problem in the family. Um, and she tried to use a little bit of religion and stuff, too. And I'm just like, mom, like she was always a little more laxed on it, like kind of, I think, supporting my dad a little bit, but less so like she really believed it was wrong. Um, and so I was just like, mom, I'm the same person. Like, come on. Like, so we were kind of okay. Like she wasn't super, super, but she cried and it was like this big drama. Um, and then I told my dad, or sorry, my, that was my mom, my sophomore year. And I told my dad my junior year um, on national coming out day, actually. Wow. By accident. I did not know it was national coming out day. <laughs> Um, we're supposed to go to Hawaii for like a basketball tournament around Thanksgiving. And I just asked him like, would you come if you, if uh, I was gay? And he was like, no. And I was like, well, I guess you're not coming. And that was the big like fallout lash. And he called me and, you know, I feel bad that it was like such a terse way to like come out to your dad. But at that point I was just so kind of sick and tired for living, living for other people. And at that point I'd been like pretty immersed in my church and feeling better about like who I was and kind of like solid in my identity. And I'm just like, this is bullshit. Like I am who I am. Like God loves me. I've always been this person. Um, and so that's kind of what I was telling him too. And he called me and kind of tried to use religion. And at this point I was like that I go to church. Like you can't tell me God doesn't love me. I know that. Yeah. So kind of those weapons weren't available anymore. And I really just was like, I'm the same person. Like, I've, this is who I've always been. And um, he did not take it well. But eventually walked me down the aisle. So that's nice. <laughs> I'm curious what uh, your parents' relationship was with your sister by the time you decided to come out. Like, were they not speaking? Had they come back together after initially falling out because of it? Yeah, they'd, they'd come back together by then. Um, my dad didn't talk to my sister for like, I want to say like three or six months. And she was in college at the time. So I remember going to her basketball games with my mom and my brother. And sometimes my dad like wouldn't go because he was so like, I can't condone this. I don't want to see her. Um, but by the time I told them in college, it was like, what, four, five, six years later, they were at a better place. Um, my sister was with the woman. It's not like it was all like rainbows and sunshine, but it was more like, well, this is who she is. And so I think a little bit for my dad was like, he was like, how did I, he felt like he created two gay kids by putting right. in sports. And it's really interesting oh, because my sister is like super femme, like could have been a cheerleader. Like she's like the diva, like super like makeup, hoop earrings, wearing her hair. And I'm like the opposite. So it was like, dad, like, it doesn't matter. It's not because he's assuming like, oh, I made you gay. Like you're boyish. Right. Um, and I'm like, it, we're total opposites, but we both are. And, and it's not your fault. Um, in some ways, basketball really like saved me and gave me the only really safe community I had growing up and a place to be queer and be okay. Yeah. That's crazy that those years would pass and, and there would still be that initial kind of reaction to it, but, but I, um, or, or that they wouldn't somehow see in you some of the same 
not behaving. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's your relationship like now? You said he walked you down the aisle. We'll get to your wedding and your, your sports power couple later, but, uh, uh, <laughs> what's it like now? It's great. I mean, my, my dad, like I said, walked me down the aisle. He's so much more accepting and he's just, he's asked for forgiveness. He's, um, I think just come to a place where he's just accepted me for who I am. It, I kind of forced him because like I cut my hair in college too. So it was like, Oh, you're gay. And then now he's like, it was really hard for him to be like, now you're gay. Now you're cutting your hair. And now you're like dressing, you know, air quotes like a boy because it was all these things that kind of got forced on him. Of like, look, this is who I am. Like you can either take it or leave it. And I think he eventually he's got the place where he saw like, this is who I am and who I've always been. And so we're in a much better place. Um, I've always been such a daddy's girl. So that was really hard growing up to not to be seen in so many ways in sport and to have his love, but to not have it in the way of like, but would you love me if you knew this one, like, you know, secret part of me. Right. To be close when it comes to the sports stuff, but have this sort of distance there. Does, does your brother get the, 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 you know, interrogation from your dad about when you came out about whether he was in, in the mix too? Oh, yeah. It was that kind of like, everybody knew but me kind of thing. And like, well, yeah, because I would you, like, you know, right. not be, you know, that my brother knew and was kind of accepting. And he was like the last one that, that didn't know. And I always say, too, I'm like, I joked at my brother, like, I want him to be gay. So I'm like, I really want the trifecta to really just like, it. like every six years, someone's going to come to your dad with this, with this news and see that, you know, how he handles it differently each time. Um, yeah. So uh, tell me about your experience at Berkeley. Uh, and when you got there, were you already dreaming that like one day this could result in playing pro ball? No, I wasn't. I, man, I just, it was like getting away from home for the first time, all those normal college experience of like, I'm on my own. This is phenomenal. Like Berkeley's such a huge campus too. Like having this 35,000 campus to walk around um just diving into basketball is like one of seven freshmen um and my biggest thing was like I wanted to go to a bigger school than my sister and she went to Pepperdine it was like a private school and they made the tournament like once you know when they won their conference tournament so I was like I'm gonna go to school we're like we make the tournament every year and like better than her school and bigger so that was like my first thing was like I beat out my sister just competitively um and so I was just trying to survive as a you know, freshmen away from home for the first time, all the the politics of like coming out and coming into your own adulthood and figuring out who you really are. Um, And just kind of being in the moment. Yeah. You, um, and a couple years or several years after you graduated, um, you sued the school for a sexual assault from an athletic department employee that you had been friends with that was sort of omnipresent in the lives of many of the student athletes there. Um, and you said in the outside the lines interview that you did about it that after many years of not telling anyone about it and keeping it private, you wanted to come forward, not just um, by telling your then girlfriend who became your wife, but by then fearing that he might do it to someone else. And did you anticipate when you spoke up about mm-hmm. the assault that there would be other people that would come forward the way that they did? Man, I know I hoped people would, but I wasn't sure. And I think like I never wanted to force people or to kind of put them the pressure for them to come out. It was something that I like was very much doing for myself, like very selfishly, I need to do this um, for my own reconciling. But then there was that other very strong piece of like, I need to do this so people can like, I just pictured little me walking on campus, like that version of me walking on campus and meeting Muhammad and 
and, and ending up in the same path that I did and being vulnerable and being like preyed upon. And so I, that was really why the big reason, but I didn't, I knew there were some others from, from private conversations, but I didn't know, you know, you never know where people's journeys are. If they're, if they're ready to speak up, if they can speak up, I had known, I think people had spoken up before, but it wasn't kind of maybe taken as seriously as my accusations were. Yeah. Well, and, and that was part of it, that there had been people who went to the school to talk about it, or there had been rumors about it, but until someone was forceful in, in reporting, uh, the school mm-hmm. didn't take any action, which is, is really tough knowing that there were people that maybe could have been saved from uh, undergoing the same thing had they acted, uh, earlier or sooner. Um, yeah, for it, you, when it, they fired him with that, uh, at least some sort of, not closure, but at least, uh, like a step forward. Yeah, I think it it gave me I wanted the bay like I wanted Cal's campus back. Like I was so afraid to walk on campus, afraid to use the weight room, afraid to to be anywhere near it for the fear of seeing him and having those interactions. And so him actually truly being removed was like a win for me in terms of just like I could walk freely. Like it's not my shame to carry. It felt like I was kind of walking around like, oh my God, what if I see him or someone mentions him? And then it puts me in this like triggering, horrible place. I was like, kind of like walking on campus, like I'm a boss. Like, yeah, I don't have anything to be ashamed of. Like, I'm not the one who assaulted someone. And so it was just really empowering to like get that space back. And I think to the previous point, it really sucks because it shows how hard it is for people victims or survivors of sexual assault to come forward you have to be like the perfect model of society like I had to be this like professional who makes enough money that I didn't want money I wasn't suing for that I had to be this articulate person who could tell a very clear story and talk publicly and do an interview uh like to be successful I had to have the power behind me to like have an attorney And so all those factors that go into someone coming to speak forward for me to truly be taken seriously and to have the public, you know, name or persona I have to draw attention even like it takes so many factors for someone to truly fight for justice. It just it's sad and sickening in that way. And that's also why I felt like a sense of duty was like I have everything at my disposal to truly gain attention and get justice. Well, and the number of people, right? The fact that then other, you know, victims came forward uh, to 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 support your story. How often it's necessary for this like massive number of people for mm-hmm. anyone to believe the stories. What was interesting too in your outside the line story um, was that you said you you kind of um, have this vague memory of after the incident, him driving you home, and that you had a relationship after that. You never spoke of it. Um, you never told anyone else, but that you and he were still close and and friends. And then this later moment of not wanting to run into him and not wanting to see him. That's so common. And a lot of people don't understand it. I I haven't Mm -hmm. been assaulted, but I was sexually harassed by someone. And for for a time afterwards, because of the shame or blame that you put on yourself, or did I do something to like make someone do that? Um, mm-hmm. And it wasn't until years later that I did not want to be in the same room as that person. And for a yeah. while afterwards, I was okay with it because in my brain, I had said um, that it had something to do with me. And when I realized it had nothing to do with me and it was them and they were probably doing it to other people, then it mm-hmm. made me kind of sick to want to be around them. And I just did not want to be near them. Um, and I think that's really hard for a lot of people who hear stories of this to kind of process what happens right after, how time affects it and all that stuff. Yeah. Your brain is so adapted protecting you. That's like, it, it helps you to survive. So when you experience something traumatic, it's very real that your brain will, you know, bury it in order to protect you so you can survive. 
Yeah. Um, well, it was it was it was uh, really impressive hearing you talk about it and, and come forward. And obviously, it was really important in terms of stopping him from being able to do that going forward. Uh, so you're you're at school and um, suddenly becomes clear. Not only are you going to play at the pro level, but you're going to go top 10 in the draft. Um, you get to the Indiana Fever. And I'm curious because uh, the WNBA has been around long enough, quarter century, for you to have grown up thinking, do I want to play professional ball? What is it like to be a professional women's mm-hmm. basketball player? What was it like to actually, you know, take that step, be drafted and realize you're now, you know, being paid and this is your job? It was surreal. It was like nothing I think I truly could have dreamed of. I don't remember like vividly dreaming, like I'm going to go to the WNBA, but I remember watching Sue Bird play with my mom I remember recently I found a picture of like me in like fifth grade that I like signed to my aunt, you know, you write in the back of the pictures. And I was like, this is me in fifth grade. Keep it forever. You'll see me in the WNBA one day. And I'm like, what? Nice. Like I really was dreaming this, <laughs> but it, it's, it's wild. And so moving forward, it just, I was so in the moment with the, the final four and how everything went kind of making school history that I just really rode the wave of like things always work out for me. And then being there, it was like, you know, I didn't know where I was going to get drafted. It was like kind of anywhere on the draft board, you you know, you follow that and you don't know where you're going to go. And so when I just, the only like uh, twinge I had was like, I, uh, I love Sue Bird. So they were the eighth pick and then Indy was the ninth pick. So that was the only oh. thing in the whole draft that I was like, <gasps> and then I like, picked Tiana Hawkins and I was like, okay, 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 that's fine. Like, okay, I'm not going to Seattle. And then it was like Indiana and I had just met Tamika Catchings like the day before and she's phenomenal leader. And met her at orientation. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to play with Catch? Like, this is dope. And, like, I'm going to Indiana? What? Like, I'm going from this California <laughs> kid, like, flying to the Midwest with a gold mohawk? Like, it's wild. That's crazy. Um, I had to play against Tamika in college or in high school. So um, I oh, know no. she was uh, quite good. Still, still is. Um, but what a great leader for you to get to to join a team that that she was a part of. Um, you mentioned sort of this. You know, you never know where you're going to end up. You're this California kid. You go to the Fever. A couple years later, you end up in Atlanta, then Connecticut. Now the Liberty. Um, you know, one of the things that I don't know that we talk enough to athletes about and really dig into is the difficulty in having to uproot um, and move to whatever the, the place is, have you noticed a big difference in the market that you play in, whether that's the amount of fans or the dedication to promotion or just the respect for, for the team and, and, and the players there? Definitely. I've played for all three uh, ownership models in the WNBA now. So you have casino, you have NBA affiliated and in and, uh, individual ownership so I've played for all three, and it's been really interesting across the board. Obviously, I played in very different locations, as you said, Midwest, the South, and then the Northeast and Connecticut. And it's been really cool to experience. Um, Connecticut had a really good fan base and obviously went to the finals last year. Um, just done a really good job with operations and seeing, like, I think it's interesting that ca- casino model ships could be, like, the wave of the future because you have the built-in gym and you have the built-in, like, ticket sales with people who visit the arena. So that was really, really interesting to experience and see like all the resources they had. Um, Atlanta was phenomenal and like the city and the people and like getting to be in a place that by that time I was like so out and like, I'm so black and queer and all the things <laughs> and just getting to be in that community was like so fun. But Atlanta struggled a little bit more being um, independently owned in that market. It's a tough market to thrive in with so many different um, entertainment options for people. 
And then Indy also was NBA owned. So that was really interesting, kind of the resources you have when you're affiliated. And we played in the same place. It was Bankers Life Arena at the time and just having the Pacers backing um, and, and their support and the, the weight room and the gym and the facilities and the access to resources. So it definitely varies depending on the model. Um I'm curious, you know, I remember you were pretty uh, outspoken with the fever that they were trying to take LGBTQ rights, put them in with diversity during Pride Month. And you felt like diversity night wasn't the same as Pride Night. And um, in in the years since, you feel like the WNBA has been better about embracing, really recognizing LGBTQ players and and sort of um, being more being more not only just um, open, but also active in promoting and caring about the identities of its players. I think on the public side, that's been really clear, right? They're mm-hmm. like, like highlighting the women that play for who they are and their own uniqueness versus sort of this idea of what we expect out of a, out of a, a pro athlete. Um, yeah. Has that made you also want to speak out more about stuff or be more authentically yourself because it feels safer? Or were you always feeling that way and you were just pushing back on the league to join you? <laughs> I was always just going to push. Like by the time I'd come to college, I was like, you know, it was like that moment I have my dad, like this, I'm not being in the closet for anyone else any longer. So coming to the league, it was just like, Hey, like you drafted me. I had a gold mohawk. Like I wore a suit (laughs) at the draft. So you knew what you were getting into when I came to this organization. So just being super out from the beginning, it was kind of like this butterfly that had like finally come out of the cocoon um, and I think the W is doing a much, much, much better job. It's hard because we're like, we're a microcosm for larger society. So I think people, it's like you blame the W in the league because they haven't done a good job. But like the reason they haven't promoted us is out of fear of like, we don't fit the standards of beauty. So it's like, we need to be better and they're trying to run a business, but like authenticity does sell. And I think we're really, really turning the corner with starting to see that. And I think um, Brittany, Griner coming to the league, like her force and magnitude and sheer size, I think has been, she's just such a pivotal piece and like kind of stomping on the court and like, this is who I am, take it or leave it. And I think she's, I always give her so much credit for just being who she is. Cause I think she's one of the people that's really pushed the league forward too, because she's a star. You couldn't deny her. You couldn't be like, Oh, we're not going to promote Brittany Griner and like put her in the corner. It's like, you have to, you have to embrace who she is and she doesn't let you not embrace it. Like no shirt sometimes or like BJ, you got to put a shirt on for the interview. Like we're in public right now. Right. She just is so who she is and I love it. And so I think it's sad though. I look back and it's such a shame a player like a Simone Augustus didn't get more credit and mm-hmm. wasn't promoted more. And she's so beautiful and so phenomenal and so who she is. And because of kind of who she is in this like underlying homophobia, I don't think she was truly promoted as one of the stars she could have been. But I think, she's kind of the last age of player that we're going to see. It's going to turn the tide. Like you're seeing the players who are being promoted now, even if they are gender nonconforming or non-binary or queer, or they dress any type of way, like a Courtney Williams, like the league's promoting her fully because we're truly embracing who people are now. Yeah. It seems clear that now more than ever, people want authenticity, partly mm-hmm. because quote unquote weird doesn't really exist as much anymore. Like everybody's just like, <laughs> do your own thing. And and if we like you, we're into it. Um, but also because I think people feel tricked a lot. Like everything's an ad or a secret, you know, like trick message that, oh, it turns out that video was actually an ad for something. It wasn't real. Like we're always just yeah. kind of the way we view everything now is with this skepticism. And so we view people that way too, that everything is perfectly drawn up for Instagram or your social media. And we would rather feel like we're getting someone 
um, and their true selves. And, and part of that is, of course, you know, uh, gender and, and sexual identity and all that. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned gender non-conforming player. Um, you, some stories written about you describe you as the WNBA's first gender non-conforming player. What does that mean to you specifically? And how is that different from, say, Brittany, who to me feels very gender non-conforming? Mm-hmm. I don't know technically how, how BG identifies, so I can't speak to like her side of it. But for me, it's, um, one, it's like the gender expression that you're not like conforming to any, like I'm not cis, that which means that I present in the way that my I was born sexually or with my sex. So if I was born a woman, I present in a feminine way, which is what like we would do traditionally. So I'm not cis in that way. Um, so I dress like a boy or a BOI is like some people call it. Um, and then further with more like identity side of it is like being non-binary, meaning like I don't really, I identify as a woman, but like more than a woman, but not a guy. It's like kind of someone who's in the middle. Like I feel like my identity is not just solidly one or it's fluid and moving kind of on the, I'm doing a sliding scale with my hand. I can't see it. Like a sliding <laughs> scale right. Right. Being non-binary in the middle, because we just understand like, um, identity is right, right and left. Basically you're either a girl or you're a boy, you're a man or you're a woman. There's no room or space for you to be anything in the middle of that. So that includes just things like I sometimes shave my legs and sometimes they're hairy. And sometimes I wear this type of clothes and Sometimes I want to look way more masculine or like, you know, I've considered having top surgery, but I'm not sure if I want to have top surgery, different things like that. And kind of just like in, in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's takes some time and effort for people to understand the difference between sex and gender and, mm-hmm. and what we display in terms of uh, that. And also the more we become okay with and, open and and respectful of um whatever people's displays of their own identity are the less easy it is to even tell whether something is an intentional or just a, a, an expression of themselves right like it's um it becomes less important i think too not to downplay the importance to the person of who they are and how they want to represent themselves but it becomes less jarring for people and it's mm-hmm. just it's just that's what you're wearing. Who cares? Whatever. I don't care. <laughs> like, you right. know what I mean? Which like is like, everyone has- you want to respect it, but you also like, at some point you're like, okay, cool. Right. That's how I think queer people just like, I just want to wear my clothes. I just want to use the bathroom and not be bothered. Like, I'm not really trying to, I'm just trying to live my life. Right, like, right. leave me alone. I'll leave you alone. It's all good. Yeah. I'm trying, trying to, to take like- all of our rights. Right. I've been trying to like learn more about it to like really understand all the different ways of of expression and and identifying. Um, And then what I often find is that it's incredibly important and also so simple. I remember watching the ESPYs with Caitlyn Jenner and their way of sort of showing her transition was in part just all of her clothes and shoes. And I turned to my colleague and I was like, this is dumb. And then I was like, but actually, what would they show that's like just gender? Nothing. Cause like right. everything, everything is both except for basically, are you wearing a dress? Like that's like what it right. comes down to. Um, and that's when you realize how dumb it is to like really care that much about that kind of expression, um, in a way that would be hateful. Like, of course you can yeah. care about it in terms of understanding how someone wants to be seen, but not, um, not in ways that should be, you know, scary or off putting. And I think Human thankfully, yeah. you know, we're getting to a place where people are just kind of like, that's cool. <laughs> Right. And I think right. people don't realize like everyone has gender. Everyone expresses their gender. Literally. It's not just queer people who express their gender. Like you 
express your gender by putting on lipstick or a pencil skirt or sweats. Like we do it across the board, but we just have such a, we're just so far behind on our understanding and education around gender that it's just this created made up thing that's not real, but is real. Like you're saying, like we all do it in different ways, but the more we can get to that and understanding that it's a, it's a spectrum and people are going to slide on it and stop trying to put everyone in one singular box, the better off we'll be. Well, and also I think there are some pretty deeply rooted ideas of how can we know whether we're supposed to respect you, pay you the same, (laughs) treat you, Mm -hmm. treat you smart. Like how can we know all the ways that we're supposed to either elevate you and treat you as an equal or shit on you if we can't tell whether you're a man or a woman? (laughs) It's It's like, no, it it shouldn't really matter that much what gender you are. Everyone should just be equal and do their best and be awesome. But uh, it tends to be people who are very, very concerned with what will happen if men and women are equal that really want to make sure they know what everyone is. Mm-hmm. It's that idea that like it would be great if we didn't have to care about all this stuff, but the fact yeah. that we do, of course, that's the reason why we have to care. Like, like when people are like I don't see race, you're like, uh huh. Like yeah. it would be great. You don't think <laughs> I would not like to see race? So everyone can stop like right looking at me sideways when I'm running down the street or in a store. You know, I don't see races. Can I please erase your lived experience because it's really uh, difficult for me to acknowledge it? So I would rather just pretend it doesn't exist in any different space than mine. Right. <laughs> oh my uh, God. Yeah. It's it is interesting though. Like um, I think what it comes down to bathrooms and sports the most when it comes to like trans issues and issues of gender identity, because those are the two spaces where it feels like it kind of matters, right? Like not, not always, but like, those are the two mm-hmm. things that we always separate, like everything yeah. else. We kind of are just like, you know, everyone, everyone together. But when it comes to sports and bathrooms, we really care where you go. And that's why those are the places where there's the most sort of tension and sort of battling right now in terms mm-hmm. of trans rights and you know, caring about how someone presents themselves. Um, but it does feel like even just in the last five years, there's like tremendous strides in, in being able to verbalize it and assign conversations that people can actually have so that they understand it better. Like you said, even coming up, not having the words or language to use mm-hmm. made it tougher for you to really like identify yourself and put yourself in a place in the world. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 100%. Um, okay. So now you're just like it. Uh, I'm going to be who I am and wherever I show up better like it. Um, so like you said, you go to the Atlanta and, and you actually get married and this, uh, are an all-star the same year. So 2017, good year for you. Um, your wife is also in sports. So you guys are a, a pretty serious power couple. <laughs> we try to be. Um, tell me about what she does. She so she used to work for um, Wasterman, which represents a lot of Olympic athletes, a lot of WNBA athletes, uh, women's national soccer team athletes. And then that's how she met Megan Rapino, And now she runs her company, kind of just runs her life, basically, and a lot of her activism work, um, helping her with a uh, book, just working on anything and everything, speeches, kind of her right hand person. I love that you married your way over to Sue Bird. Like you wanted to be on a team with Sue Bird and you made, you made your way over using, using, uh, a connection through your wife. Well done. Um, 
well, the four of you, then that's like a, that's a crazy power uh, quartet there in sports. I love that. Um, <laughs> so you get married um, and you end up with the son and then now you've been traded to the Liberty. So what's it like, first of all, to have, you know, your pickup, at least Connecticut and, and New York are a little bit closer to each other, but you pick up <laughs> and, and move and, and once again have to establish with a new team. But in doing so, you join a team that like you can't hang out with yet or practice or um, since since the trade, have you been able to do anything with your teammates or coaches? We've done. So I actually got to finally sign with New York. So that was finally my free agency moment after two trades. Oh, it wasn't career. a trade. Signed okay, cool. Yeah, nice. finally. It's like tra- traded around like a playing card. So now I was like, all right, I'm picking where I'm going, going to New York. So that was super empowering. Then the pandemic, <laughs> then 2020 happened. <laughs> so I actually have known my coach previously. We used to train together, like a uh, skill development coach before he was with the Minnesota Lynx. So I've known him a while. So that's nice. And right before the pandemic had happened, I think even in like February, he had flown out after I signed with the team and we trained a little bit. So that was nice. But since then, I've had like no in-person contact with any of my team. We have done um, Zoom calls. We've done like a team meeting Zoom call. It's really weird because I don't know any of my teammates. I kind of know them from the league, but I truly don't know them. I hadn't played with them. I'd only played against them. And so that's been interesting, like being a veteran and going to a brand new team and then supposed to be there early for workouts and train and like know them by now and be hanging out. And so trying to do it virtually has been really interesting. Um, and we do something cool too. That's like a quarterback club where the coach, uh, well, he assigns like three quarterbacks on the team and then we meet with him and then the quarterbacks go meet with the players and we're like doing like a trickling down of like teaching the plays and stuff. So that's been a fun way to engage the players. Yeah. We had Walt on Spain and company. It seems like a cool dude, very young, like seems like he'd be a fun guy to play for. Oh yeah. He's a hoot. He's like, he does like impersonations and he's just like so warm and for like a guy who's like six, seven too, like he's so comfortable with his masculinity. So like stuff about gender and I'll be like, dude, you're not, nah, you're on that white man shit. Like, get out of here. <laughs> and he's like, no, no. Yeah. So he's just great. Like, he doesn't take himself too serious, but he's really mature and knows how to hold people accountable. He's done a lot of work in like psychology. So he's a really good mix. I feel like kind of that young, like up and coming um, style of coach, like the Steve Kerr, where the game seems to be going, like have more of that relationship with their players where you're not having to like scream in their face to get them to play hard. Right. Yeah. That's good. Hopefully that seems like <laughs> someone you'd want to want to play for. Um, okay. You're Lasia. There's also an Asia on the team. What are we going to do here? What's the plan? What do you, are you going to go by Clarendon, Elsie? What's, what's the plan here? I go by Lace. I think that works okay. pretty well. All right. Asia also goes by Durr too. So, okay. and then good. we've got two Kias. This is, this is a weird mix. <laughs> and then you've got Sabrina Ionescu who was just drafted number one overall. Uh, have you had a chance to meet her or talk to her at all? Oh, I did actually meet up with her uh, right after we drafted her. She lives in Walnut Creek. I'm in Oakland. So we're like 20 minutes away. And I met up and gave her some gear. I did play with her, uh, I think, last year, one of our USA basketball like college camps. So I've had the chance to be around her a little bit. I've been around Asia Dur a little bit. Um, I mean, when she was drafted, I just was like tweeted like Sabrina, Sabrina in all caps. Like she's, <laughs> she's phenomenal. And to know you need a franchise player to be, you know, really good and you want that weight and power behind their marketing and their backing. Like she's already selling jerseys. Like mm-hmm. it just gives me so much joy and hope for like the future of our game. Like I'm so thankful I'm still playing while I get to like be in touch with the next generation to see where they're going to take us to. 
Yeah, and certainly a lot more spotlight and interest in the team when you've got someone like Sabrina on your squad and you're in New York and you've got a new coach. So lots to be excited about. Also, the new CBA, something to be excited about. Again, so frustrating that 2020 is shitting on all of our plans. I was just picturing you like that meme going around, like my 2020 plans is you signing with the Liberty and then 2020 (laughs) is just you sitting on your couch with like your dog and your basketball. Um but tell me about this new CBA and, and the excitement that you kind of have to start this season as does it feel different than other years? Oh man, like definitely pre pandemic of all the things that were good about it going in, um, were obviously more money. That was like one of the highest priorities was wanting to get players paid more. So increasing the overall salary cap, like making sure everyone got a bump too, because our star players definitely deserve the biggest piece of the pie because they're the stars, but we couldn't do it at the sake of, you know, being truly American and giving no one anything at the bottom, <laughs> exploiting the bottom. <laughs> so that was a big part of it. Um, we did so much for our moms. Like we are a league full of women, even some non-binary that um, have a lot of children. And so that was a big, big factor it was like, we need to make sure we're protecting moms, make sure they're getting hundred percent maternity leave, not 50%. Like they should not be punished or mommy tax for having a child. Um, and then systematically making sure they have like access to childcare. So that's where the childcare stipend came in. Um, one of some other things, uh, health benefits, making sure we get maternity leave for the other partner too, because it's often not just the partner who's caring. Right. Um, mental health was another big factor. I actually like just got off of our first mental health, like town hall meeting where we met with two psychologists and any player could get on it just to have like right. literally a player only space where there was no staff. They started the introductions and they got off so we could just talk. And I was kind of like annoyed going into like, I'm tired. I don't want to get on the call. And I just felt so good to have like the connection and the human remembering like we're all in this together. So mental health has been a really big, uh, a factor. And then we're still trying to figure out, like what travel will look like. We put in a policy to address travel and plan to make like a committee about it. And so figuring out, is it, you know, partnering with one or one um, airline? Is it chartering when we need to in the playoffs or when there's back to backs kind of really being, you know, realistic about where we are and where travel can be. Yeah, for sure. I was so excited to see it go down and I loved actually watching Sue on the, the, the shop on HBO talking about like some of the ways that the WNBA has evolved past believing that, you know, all deals have to go through the NBA or that this is how things have to be mm-hmm. done, that just sort of the evolution of the league will benefit how it's run. And obviously still lots yet to be done, but that new CBA was a huge step forward there. Um, Quickly, uh, you have been quarantined and, and stuck in the Bay Area. How are you working out? Do you have a hoop? Are you, uh, are you able to do like workouts from afar with your teammates? Been, man, since March 13th, I've been quarantined. Me too. I Same day. Have, nice. Oh, <laughs> I bought a spin bike pretty quickly, not the Peloton. They can send me one, please. I'd love it. But I was like, I'm not ready to drop the bank on the Peloton because this could be like a temporary thing. Right. So I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to like the Peloton. So I just got a bike, just like ordered a spin bike, a nice one. And, you know, got the cadence tracker, all that thing down with the app. So that's, that's been a huge help because the running outside, like you talk to any athlete and they're like, bruh, I tried it for two days and like knees, ankles, back are jacked. Yeah. So I try not to run outside at all costs. I like sprint once a week, like up a hill. And that's the only like outdoor running I do. Um, I got a couple weights, so that was huge. Weights became like gold all of a sudden. Like you couldn't find weights online. Uh-huh. Like not find a 30 pound dumbbell. I'm like on eBay, like, oh, I got to outbid this person. Like what is the world come to? 
um, got bands, all that kind of stuff, doing a lot of Pilates. Uh, that's been huge in yoga, trying to take it as a chance to get better at some of those like tedious rehab things you normally don't have time and energy to do because you're just like going and playing, um, coming off the ankle injury. So really focusing a lot on ankle rehab too and balance and stability. Yeah, it's uh, it's tough to stay motivated. I can only do the live ones. Like if it's pre-taped on YouTube, I'm like, meh. <laughs> I'm gonna go take it live. I'm like, send an email. Uh, but when it's live, I'm like, I gotta stick with it. Like they're gonna pass me by. They're gonna leave me behind. Uh, <laughs> all right. Before we let you go, I could talk to you forever, but uh, we we have lives and, and things to do. So you have to do the one thing that everybody does, but nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Question number one. What's your desert island album? You can only have one. Oh God! <laughs> I know it's really mean. Oh, uh, that's a good one. Shit, that's a good one. What's you popping into like your that. head? Don't overthink. Cheap uh, Queen, I think. Okay, all right. Yeah, take it. Uh, number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Relentlessness. Okay. Number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Oh my God. These are deep. Are these like rapid fire? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Biggest failure. Uh, not believing in myself. Interesting. Okay. How long did that last? Or are we still there? <laughs> 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 this therapy now, sorry. We're definitely not there. I think the darkest moments of not believing in myself, like, do I truly belong in this league and in the WNBA and like part of Team USA? We're not there anymore. I mean, Good. glad to hear that. Uh, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? A slap fight. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Okay. Slap fight. It doesn't count. So that's a no, but that's good. I, <laughs> I, I like it when people have managed to avoid the, uh, the fist fights. Uh, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Oh, Beyonce. But she works lots really of people. Hard. Yeah. Lots of people want to be Beyonce. I totally get that. It, it absolutely checks out. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh God. The most embarrassed shit. Probably scoring on the wrong basket in like one of my first high school games. I took the ball the wrong way and I made a layup. The funny thing about that is the number of basketball players I've had on and that is their most embarrassing moment is multiple, which means everybody does it and that it sticks <laughs> with you. No matter how successful you get, you still remember that one moment because it's so mortifying. It's so far. You know how many feet it is to get from the middle of the jump? Well, did you see that video a couple of years ago that went viral where the youth coach blocked his own player before he could no. get to the other side? Because he was yelling and yelling and the kid just kept powering through. So he ran and blocked him. It was amazing. Oh, my God. Um, look it up. Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? My perfectionism. Okay. That's a good one. Are you, are you, you mentioned earlier control and like type A, so you're still like that? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, working through it. yeah, I think it's helpful at times and crippling 
at other times. <laughs> yes, literally. <laughs> <laughs> Your worst enemy. Yep. Uh, number eight, if you could play commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Oh, my God. My, I mean, my political side goes instantly to be the president so I can fix the world. Uh, no underwear for a day. No one can wear underwear. Wow. Okay. That's a very bold stance and seems unimportant. Why is it that the, the, the world going commando will, uh, will help? Cause it's pretty amazing. And I think people just, there's like a lot of, you know, stigma behind it. Like they just wouldn't, I would like, you got to try it. So I'd force everybody. Okay. Except I'm going to go deeper. If you're on your period, you can wear underwear. Okay, good. That's useful. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is definitely the weirdest answer I've gotten to that question. Usually people are like, everyone needs to be kind. And you're like, no, nah, nah, I think nah. commando. Yeah. Um, <laughs> number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Oh, I was on, I was on a bus in college once and something happened where there was like a shooting going down and the bus had to like pull over and turn off the lights. And we oh, like wow. had to just for a little bit, like we, there was something going on in the street at the place and the dust literally just pulled over and we're like, Oh, like, where do we go? We can't get off. And then we waited like 20 minutes and then we just went and I was on the way to Target, just like in college riding the bus on the way to Target. Like, okay, back to Target trip. Yeah. That's terrifying. I actually weirdly have had multiple nightmares where I'm on a bus during a shooting. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's not, not great. Um, number 10, what three words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Hmm. Resilient, uh, kind or sweet. And no, uh, giving, let's say giving. That's good. That's a good one. I like that. Um, and then the final bonus question, who would you recommend I have on this podcast? Who's someone interesting I should talk to? Oh. Who's somebody you should talk to? Oh, my God. Have you talked to Glennon Doyle? No, but I would love to. And I just finished her book. So I would. <gasps> yeah, I actually had the pleasure of sitting with her and their kids uh, at a Gatorade event that Abby and I were both at. It was really fun yeah. to pick her brain. It was like really early on. And I think they weren't even married yet. Um, and so now reading the book, I'm like, oh, man, if I was back at that dinner, I would have so many more questions for her. Like, because I, I had yeah. really followed her work when she was a Christian mom blogger. I was oh, yeah. going to. I'm kind of out on that part, but she has since become someone that I very much admire. I'm interested in her work. So um, that would be a great one. I should, I should definitely look into that one. Um, Love it. Lisa, this was really fun. I'm glad I got to pick your brain and uh, I'm really looking forward to when you guys get back to work. Cause uh, I am a big fan of Sabrina and now a big fan of you. So uh, the Liberty will have to be my, uh, the second or third team. I've got a lot of teams. It's <laughs> I got, I got, I like, well, once you start to know too many people in the league, so I've got my Chicago sky, but then I'm like obsessed with Sue Bird. I love Sue Bird so much. So I got to, but then I also love Della Dunn who used to be my girl when she was a part of the sky, but I still just like love watching her play. Cause she reminds me of KG, which was always one of my faves on the men's okay. side. So then, you know, now I've like, I've gotten to a lot of teams already and I still haven't gotten to the Liberty. So I'm going to have to just, I'm going to put you in there somewhere at the top. You're in the top six half of the league. Okay. <laughs> You're definitely in my top half of the league. <laughs> um, you know, if you play well enough, maybe you'll move up. That's a challenge yeah. for you. Yep. you no, know? you can it. use that as motivation. Um, this was super fun. Thanks, Lasia. Appreciate it. No problem. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. 
This week, I finally turned the tables on myself, folks, because I feel that I am falling into the trap that I have judged others for, and that is, does good weather mean that the coronavirus no longer exists? Now, my brain tells me, no, of course not. Yes, there are potentially some studies that tell you it's not quite as bad in warmer weather and that the summer might be a good time for a lot of things to resume uh, with the hopes that there will not be some massive resurgence when cold weather comes again in the fall. Sure, there are some studies that say that, but that doesn't mean that right now in this current moment, just because Chicago is beautiful and sunny almost every day the last couple of days, that suddenly all rules go out the window. Just because it is harder to wear a mask when it's 85 degrees and you're sweating all over your face and sucking in hot air, that you don't have to wear one anymore. I know all this, but somewhere deep inside me, the person who survives Chicago winters solely by looking ahead to warm weather days like this one just wants to throw caution to the wind and spend the entire day outdoors even if it means being near other people. And honestly, one day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this because I'm going to want to spend my time doing the things I would normally do in the summer in Chicago, going boating and eating al fresca, hanging out with my friends, going to parties. But I have to remind myself that I am the problem right now. My brain and my heart are fighting with each other. I need to continue listening to experts. So all right. I feel good about what we accomplished today. Just talking it out helps, you know, just acknowledging that I'm one of those jerks that we all complain about on the Internet that seems to believe that the weather changes and therefore so does the disease. It doesn't. I got it out. I talked about it. Now I'm going to now I'm going to just have to be smart and listen to the guidelines of the people who are much smarter than me there. I fixed it. If you got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate and review, leave the dilemma in your review and maybe I'll fix it on a future podcast. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. <laughs>